Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 58 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. You're joined by your hosts, as per usual, Tierra and Jack. And before we head into our Q&A, we just wanted to give out a few reminders that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to repost them on your stories, tell your family and friends, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. Also, if you are interested in our coaching services or just want to have a look at what we offer, please head over to our website. You can find the link in the show notes and also heading to any of our Instagram bios as well or just searching www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. To see some of our other content, you can also head over to YouTube and just search The Bodybuilding Dietitians to see us in video format. Fantastic. All right. So guys, we are going to jump straight into this Q&A for today. Now, this first question, it asks, does overtraining cause muscle loss? How can we avoid overtraining in general? Now, I think that this is an awesome question to start off with, particularly because it uses the word overtraining, which I'm sure a lot of you, you know, have heard before, maybe even even used the term before saying that, you know, oh, I've overtrained. But, you know, in exercise physiology, actually getting to a state of overtrained or being overtrained is actually incredibly difficult and it's actually pretty damn rare. So the word that overtraining is often confused with is actually overreaching. And you know, I guess a definition we could use for overreaching is that it's an attempt to overstress the body or over a short period of time. So there's only a short term decrement in exercise performance and you're usually recovered in a matter of days. So for example, it's quite common to overreach at the end of a training cycle, you know, or an end of a mesocycle. And then after you take a deload, you're generally recovered within a number of days and then you can hit your training hard again. So most people are actually overreached and not actually overtrained. So being overtrained is, you know, it's highly individual and generally it's actually going to lead to a long-term decrement in your strength increased fatigue levels, you're gonna have a loss of appetite, you know, you might lose some weight, sleep and mood is gonna be heavily disturbed, you're really gonna lack motivation, you're gonna lack concentration, you can even be depressed. And you know, there are quite a few things that can negatively happen physiologically. So for example, you can have changes in both your exercising and resting blood pressure, your heart rate, and to pretty much answer this question of whether or not overtraining causes muscle loss, I would say that yes, in the case of someone who is truly overtrained, it could certainly lead to muscle loss. One is because the ratio of cortisol to testosterone actually changes. So usually testosterone actually will decrease during overtraining and cortisol will actually rise, putting your body in a more catabolic state. So that could certainly lead to muscle loss. And when you tie that in as well with a decreased appetite, you know, you're not eating as much, and you know, perhaps you're not providing yourself with the proper fuel, of course, that can contribute to muscle loss as well. So yes, overtraining can lead to muscle loss, but 
Again, it's just so rare, guys. You know, overtraining is usually only experienced by people who are, you know, like endurance athletes and ultra marathon runners, you know, or people who are doing these very metatonic exercises, which means they're just repeating the same bouts over and over again over a very chronic period of time. So for most of us, you know, who are just going to the gym five or six days a week, it's not really something we need to worry about. We more just need to pay attention to our signals of overreaching and make sure that, you know, when we feel like we've been overreached, we just take a deload, you know, we're responsible, we look after ourselves, and in that case, we're not gonna risk any muscle loss as long as, you know, we're getting enough sleep, we're eating right, you know, and we're not doing anything silly. So that's pretty much my answer to that question. Yeah, I think that was an excellent consensus by Tierra. And the other aspect of overtraining as well is it's more correlated with your total volume as opposed to intensity, which is why it may be more related to athletes such as endurance runners, marathon runners, etc. potentially less likely in uh, sprinters unless they're doing uh, incredible amounts of volume, which would kind of oppose their training regime anyway, I would expect. So, and yeah, I remember a few years ago, like, maybe five or six even they like a few influencers like used to be promoting uh, overtraining as a secret to gains but they must have really been mistaking their terminology or just basically bullshitting because yeah overtraining really is it's classified as overtraining syndrome so it is quite a serious condition like just like an illness so when someone and for any of the listeners who are thinking about oh maybe i'm having one of those symptoms that tiara mentioned just bear in mind that it is very rare to have overtraining syndrome like more than likely you're just fatigued or require a deload require a rest and you've just been training hard but it's very unlikely to lead to overtraining yeah absolutely and uh let's have our fingers crossed that none of the listeners and neither you or i ever experience overtraining syndrome <laughs> All right, so this next question is about collagen. So it asks, what's the evidence for using hydrolyzed collagen as a protein powder supplement? I can't use whey. So I feel like this has also been a supplement promoted by a lot of uh, companies and influencers as well for muscle gain when, to be honest, it's one of the worst supplements you could take for <laughs> muscle gain to take it exclusively. So. Yeah, there's that. And the reason why is basically when we want to induce muscle protein synthesis, we want to be getting a threshold of leucine and also a dose of the essential amino acids as well. And essentially collagen only has three amino acids of them being glycine, proline and hydroxyproline. So to take into account, there's, I think, nine essential amino acids, then you're kind of missing out on quite a lot there, not to mention there's no leucine either. So if you're just taking collagen as a supplement without anything else, then yeah, you need to be looking for something else like a, like a vegan protein or casein, as long as it contains those requirements that I just mentioned. Literally, I think that consuming anything, unless it was like 
oil would actually be more beneficial than consuming straight collagen. I think that even if you were to consume like a grain source, even if it was like white bread, that would probably have more amino acids in it than collagen because guys, again, we have to remember that again, to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, we want a high biological value protein source. So one that provides all those nine essential amino acids, or even preferably it has all 20 amino acids. But collagen actually has a biological value of zero, which means it is the worst thing on the planet probably for stimulating muscle protein th synthesis compared to something like an egg, which has like the highest biological value protein and it's rated as like 100. So eat your eggs, probably maybe avoid your uh, collagen supplements post-workout. And yeah, again, you know, this has just been promoted in the health and fitness industry. And we're not necessarily saying collagen is unhealthy per se, but you know, I think people just take it out of context. Like, yes, collagen is integrated into almost every cell in our body, you know, and it's very important for growing our hair and our skin and our nails and our collagen between our bones but uh, it's not very good for building muscle. Yeah, it's very typical instance of the health and fitness or supplement industry, uh, sort of gathering something like collagen, which is fundamental for us and we need it, but, and then trying to translate it into performance or muscle gain when sure, if we didn't have collagen, we probably wouldn't even, even be able to go to the gym because- <laughs> Dude, what the hell would the body look like without collagen? You wouldn't have skin. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, we'd look pretty ugly as well, but so yeah, it's a very typical sort of thing like of the supplement industry to do and try and link it to something we feel like we need for that boost for performance or muscle gain. But yeah, the reality is, as we've said, it's just not necessary. However, there has actually been a few studies on it in relation to joint and tendon health. And the reality is that going to the gym does put stress on your tendons and joints. And this doesn't mean that it, you're going to have issues in the future. For some people who maybe have a genetic predisposition for having weaker joints or tendons then yes, or having a history of arthritis in the family, but for most people, just because you lift weights doesn't mean you're gonna have issues down the line. However, if you're maybe like a powerlifter or a strong man, then potentially you might have increased risks of um, joint and tendon issues, or even looking at things like a repetitive injury, such as um, tendonitis, that collagen may be beneficial in uh, preventing this or making it better. And there was a study done in mass, which is a research review and recent evidence is actually pointing towards, as we indicated, that uh, supplementation of collagen combined with a vitamin C source may actually be beneficial for some circumstances or some people in promoting joint and tendon health. Yeah, and I think the specific dosages used in that study were between five to 15 grams of collagen combined with 50 milligrams of vitamin C. And the reason for that is because vitamin C is an integral component of 
developing, you know, that triple helix of the collagen. And it's very, very important in collagen synthesis. So that's what they used, you know, and that was over a chronic period of time of weeks to months on end. And they did see some benefit, you know, in promoting collagen synthesis in the body and also reports of, you know, decreased joint injuries and basically increased joint health. So it is something that you could potentially consider, but at the same time, you know, there's not a huge body of evidence supporting it. So, you know, more research pretty much needs to be done. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what future research sort of reveals on that topic. But moving on to the next question, and this one is by Chloe. She asks, does drinking water right before, during, or right after eating affect digestion? So to start off answering this question, I think it's important to touch on the digestive anatomy and how food passes through the body. So essentially, we know it starts off in the mouth, you chew, which is also known as mastication, and it goes into the esophagus down into the stomach. And the stomach is responsible for mixing all that food. It contains uh, hydrochloric acid as well, which assists in breaking down food and a bunch of other important things as well. And leaving the stomach, it enters the small intestine. And how I remembered in uni, the parts of the small intestine was DJ Ilium and often plays at the RE. Um, but so that's basically the geodenum, the jejunum and the ileum, and then goes into the large intestine, which has, uh, segments of the colon. And then you basically poo it, poo the leftovers out. Yeah. Get rid of that waste. (laughs) But you know, pretty much when you eat a meal, the digestion of that meal isn't necessarily going to be influenced by whether or not you consume water. And The reason for that is that the body is just damn good at digesting food and doing its job. And, you know, if it needed a little bit of extra water in a certain part of the body, so for example, if the stomach needed a little bit more water, if the small intestine needed a little bit more water, you know, across that concentration gradient, it will just draw more water into that space. But, you know, something interesting about the small intestine is that despite the concentration gradient, so For example, if you had more solutes on the inside of the small intestine and less solutes on the outside, it will actually favor drawing water out of the small intestine into the lumen and, you know, into the blood capillaries and all of that. So it's actually very, um, very cool in that sense. So in short, the small intestine is super duper efficient and very, very good at absorbing fluid. But again, we have to remember that total volume of food, it does influence gastric emptying time and it does influence transit time through the intestine. So if you were to drink a lot of water, so for example, if you were to drink like a gallon of water, that would significantly increase, you know, gastric emptying time and um, the absorption of that water into the small intestine. But, you know, that's going to extremes, but you know, we have to remember that, you know, food also has a hydration component too. You know, your food isn't just dry. Your food usually has water in it. So if you're consuming pasta or rice, you know, that's been cooked in water, it's absorbed water. If you're consuming vegetables or fruits or even a piece of meat, you know, that has water in it too. So you're still consuming fluid. Yeah, hundred percent. And 
I think when I've heard this question asked before, people often mention, oh, it might dilute your enzymes or dilute your hydrochloric acid in your stomach. But we got to remember that it's not like your stomach or small intestine is devoid of water. There is a constant movement of fluid across membra membranes in order to absorb electrolytes, etc. And just because you're hydrating yourself further along with food doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to impair digestion at all. Yep, so I'd say just eat your food, stay well hydrated throughout the day, and uh, let the body do its job. Okay, so this next question says, can you talk about superfoods? Are they useful, or can they work against you? So superfoods are an interesting one, and I'm sure you guys have uh, been to the grocery store and you've walked down pretty much any aisle, unless it's like the cleaning detergent aisle. <laughs> Hey, I wouldn't even be surprised if something said superfood on there, but uh, pretty much superfood, you know, it's this amazing marketed word and it is just freaking plastered on basically every single product. So a superfood is pretty much a food which just tends to have a slightly higher nutrient content compared to its other food counterparts. So. For example, you know, let's think about chia seeds, right? So chia seeds are called a superfood because they have omega-3s in them, you know, and a little bit of calcium and a little bit of plant iron and all this other jazz, right? They've got a little bit of protein and they're called a superfood because they're just so damn super, right? Maybe not. Yeah, so we really have to consider what actually makes a healthy diet. Like why is something healthy? What actually composes uh, your diet to be good, not so good, bad, etc. So or super. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look at what comprises a healthy diet. So we used to think that essentially all that mattered in terms of the diet was just getting your nutrition. So eating adequate micronutrients, etc. And that is undoubtedly probably the most fundamental part of the diet in making sure that you aren't deficient in any of those essential nutrients such as essential fatty acids, vitamin C, etc. But in more recent years, we've sort of this and this is sort of tied into the gut microbiome and eating in diversity. And that's pretty much it making sure you're having a diverse range of food types. And the thing with superfoods is that they have an elevated concentration of maybe a specific nutrient. And the example Tierra used was chia seeds and omega-3. So omega-3 is still just one nutrient. So if you eat chia seeds every day, you're still just getting more omega-3. And we need to acknowledge that the diversity aspect and diversity in nutrients and phytochemicals and also fiber types as well. So yeah, you're pretty much just eating a food type which has more nutrients. But if you're only eating, let's say, chia seeds and getting omega-3, then are you catering for all the other essential nutrients and mixing up different phytochemicals, different fiber types as well to create a very good gut microbiome as well? Yeah, I think that's such a wonderful point. So, for example, if someone was only putting chia seeds on their morning smoothie bowl, right? but they were never having walnuts or they were never having almonds or cashews or pistachios or linseeds or something else, right? They're missing out on all of these wonderful nutrients that aren't found in chia seeds. And sure, these other foods, like for example, almonds might not be a good source of omega-3s, but they do have some vitamin E, unlike chia seeds, right? Wow. So mix it up, man. I would argue that anything that is grown out of the flipping ground 
is super, all right? Any sort of plant-based food is super. So yeah, eat an abundance of it, eat a variety of it, and don't get married, you know, to eating from these 10 selected foods for the rest of your life, because damn, you're really gonna miss out. And I think what they're showing now is that, you know, people would generally, it's hard to say because like the healthiest gut microbiome, because your gut microbiome, you know, it's specifically individual to you. But generally, if someone is consuming 30 or more different type of plant-based foods every single week, they generally have the greatest diversity and symbiosis of their gut and their microbiome. So we would really encourage you, you know, to eat as many plants as you can. <laughs> that's a, uh, yeah, that, that's my best recommendation. Every, every plant is super. And if you are a bit confused or don't know what the gut microbiome is, we did make a post on our TBD Instagram page and it's quite a good summary of what it is and why it's important. So yeah, definitely check that out. And you know, just to finish off this question, I just want to reiterate guys, please don't be fooled by marketing, you know, and don't be tricked into buying $20 acai berries when you can just eat strawberries in season or you can eat grapes or you can eat some maybe some frozen blueberries or something or don't be tricked into you know buying avocado and macadamia nut oil and coconut oil even though on the on the tag it says superfood instead of you know having some olive oil every now and then so just getting a diversity in there and you can't really go wrong all right, so we're gonna move on to this next question now. So this one says, thoughts on individuals competing with a history of eating disorders? Man, this is a big question. Yeah, it is quite a serious question as well. And I think to start off, it's good to sort of differentiate the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders. So disordered eating is essentially portraying patterns which may in the future develop into a eating disorder. So for example, disordered eating might look like maybe uh, binging or purging every six months after having a very large meal. So like eating to excess and then not eating the next day, but it's very infrequent. Or even things being picky with your food or skipping breakfast quite regularly because you feel like you're getting a bit fat or ate too much the day before, things like that. And eating disorder is like a classification, like a psychological disorder. And there's specific criteria for like anorexia nervosa, uh, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. And there is, might be in the future, orthorexia might be classified as a eating disorder, which is essentially always trying to eat healthily and being constantly worried about um, being too good as opposed to not eating that package of chips or um, worrying too much about your sugar, all that sort of stuff. So, and to be honest, like Tia and I both portray and most bodybuilders who, who compete have disordered eating because at the end of the day, it's very abnormal to be counting your macros and worrying about your specific ratio of carbohydrates to fats. And Tia and I in the past have probably had like low levels of orthorexia being worried about like, oh, we need to have all whole grains and like all monounsaturated fats and that sort of stuff. Yeah, certainly. So orthorexia is just that obsession with healthy eating. And yeah, I, I think we've certainly had tinges of that in the past. And I'm not going to lie, I probably still have tinges of that. It's uh, 
as, as a dietitian, it's hard to get away from that. You know, when, when you're so filled with knowledge, you know, on how to eat well, it's very, very difficult to, uh, push that aside whenever you sit down to a meal because you really just want to take care of yourself, you know, and you want to apply everything that you've learned to your health. Yeah. And to start answering the question now, I think it really depends on the individual, but like as a quick answer before I get into a bit more detail, I don't think that individuals who have had eating disorders should be looking to compete uh, in the near future. Like I think they should be completely recovered upon working with a allied health team like a psychologist a dietitian but the long answer is that it really does depend on who you are so for example someone who is incredibly competitive and like let's say like they might have had something more like uh binge eating eating disorder as opposed to anorexia so they're still able to train relatively well and put on size but their association with binge eating has nothing to do with bodybuilding. So maybe having a competitive goal might be really beneficial for them to knuckle down and do something because it all depends on what you were triggered by in terms of your eating disorder. It could have nothing to do with the process of dieting, but because we're in this sort of culture nowadays of dieting and uh, the body image, etc., a lot of males and females are both sort of triggered by this new culture and society of constantly trying to lose weight. This spirals into disordered eating, then eating disorders. And sometimes it's wrong to sort of combine that with um, a competing and stuff like that. Yes, it is a very extreme sport, but it doesn't always mean that it's going to be negative. Uh, But just remember, my primary answer was no, they should be looking to be fully recovered first and be 100% sure and preferably even be ticked off by like a sports dietitian and a psychologist before they even think about it. Yeah, I could not agree more. You know, first thing is recovery. That is a top, top, top priority. But, you know, I do have a lot of faith that people can change, you know, and people are able to overcome things. And later in life, you know, they're able to do new things that Previously, they would have faced serious challenges as with. So a prime example for, you know, a world level athlete who has overcome a severe eating disorder is Hattie Boydell. And she talks about this, you know, it's a huge part of her story. But, you know, Hattie Boydell did suffer from severe anorexia nervosa in her younger teenage years. And look at her now, you know, she's won a WBFF world title, you know, she's up there with the top tier of athletes. And she is such an inspiration to so many women and young girls out there because she was able to overcome that, you know, and now she's very healthy and she's very fit and she has a completely different mindset and a completely different relationship with food. So, you know, I am a huge advocate for people trying to get better and to keep pushing forward and to keep progressing and, you know, really following their dreams and their passions. And I can certainly speak from that on behalf of myself because, you know, I never had a clinically diagnosed eating disorder, but certainly had disordered eating in my life. But I feel so much better now and I am definitely involved in physique sport, but ah, gosh, it's going to be so damn individual and just make sure, you know, that you have good mentors, a very good coach, you know, you're very well supported and guided and 
education is just going to be such a fundamental part of this and sustainable eating habits. You know, you don't want to do any sort of quick fixes or you really want to get out of that right and wrong mentality. So that's why it's so damn important to work with a qualified health professional who is very well respected in their field in terms of, you know, if someone was a dietitian, a sports dietitian, you know, a sports nutritionist, someone along those lines. Yeah, and if you are struggling with any of those, uh, I guess, disordered eating symptoms, or then don't be afraid to uh, reach out for some advice, either to friends, family, or even on social media to us or another dietitian or health professional. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so moving on to the next question. This one is, what is cellulite? Why do women have more than men? How do you reduce it? So when we're thinking about cellulite, you know, a lot of girls certainly talk about it and a lot of girls certainly have it. And just want to let everyone know that cellulite is completely normal and it's completely harmless. So it's pretty much just a skin condition that causes like little lumps and little dimples generally on your thighs, your hips, your butt, you know, your stomach. And you know, the exact cause of cellulite they don't really know what it is. They think it's pretty much an interaction between the connective tissue, you know, and that layer of fat in those areas. But, ah, they don't really know. Uh, I would say that generally cellulite does come upon when you do gain a little bit more weight, and I've certainly experienced this myself. So, for example, when I was much leaner and I wasn't as high of a body fat percentage, I had never had cellulite before, but during the very peak of my improvement season, when I did get up to 71 kilograms, I remember taking some videos of me doing RDLs from the back, and I looked back on the videos and I'm like, holy shit, I've never had that before. I actually had some cellulite. So I actually thought that was almost interesting because it's just something that I'd never had before. But uh, pretty much some women, you know, they do experience that they can get rid of their cellulite by losing a little bit of weight, but not in all cases necessarily. Sometimes, you know, you just generally do have cellulite regardless of whether you're a healthy body weight or not. Uh, And unfortunately, guys, there's no real magical medicine. There's no real magical food or protocol or something that can get rid of it. You know, I would uh, pretty much just say if you have a little bit, just, you know, accept that it's completely normal. A lot of girls have it. You certainly shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed about it. You know, just embrace it. It's literally just a part of your body. You know, it's uh, it's like freckles on your cheeks. You know, nothing wrong with it. Completely normal. Some people have it. Some people don't. And it doesn't define the quality of the person who you are. So That's all I can really say on cellulite. I really don't know much about it, to be completely honest. All right, so moving on to this next question, which I think is a really good one. So this one says, for a client, would you be more inclined to program higher steps or structured cardio? I would love to hear Jack's answer to this one. So in order to answer this question, we have to remember what the main goal of doing additional cardiovascular work or steps is. And in the, in the case of a comp prep, the goal is to expend more energy to enable us to achieve an energy deficit and lose body fat. 
And sure, this can be achieved through doing additional cardiovascular work, such as walking on the step or the treadmill, or just doing additional steps per day. And something that we've always done with all of our clients is just programmed additional steps. And if the need really requires us to incorporate cardio, we will do that, but it has been very occasionally, uh, quite rare in fact. And so the benefit of steps is that it's very low impact and it can be achieved throughout the day. And it will, it's very unlikely to impact subsequent training sessions such as leg days, whereas something like high intensity interval training or like stepper or incline treadmill or bike work may correlate to a, like more glycogen depletion in the lower body, increased recovery times, and like together it may impact your recovery and performance in the gym. And ultimately our goal as well is to retain lean body mass. So we need to retain that performance in the gym. Yeah. What do you think, Tiara? So to be honest, it's really going to come down to the client's personal preference. Off the bat, you kind of need to have that conversation with them of, all right, so we need to increase energy expenditure because we don't necessarily want to drop food any lower. Would you rather increase your daily step targets or would you like to put in some structured cardio? And it's really going to come down to their personal preference. So usually we would do it at that point where steps are at a minimum of 10,000 per day. Like if steps were any lower than 10,000 per day, we'd probably try to get steps up to at least 10,000, right? But if steps are at 10,000 per day, and let's say that your client already does have a very busy desk job, which just requires them unfortunately to be quite sedentary during the day. And they're only just reaching that 10,000 step mark, you know, but trying to go for walks in the morning, trying to go for walks at night, and they're going to the gym. And they're like, man, to be honest, if I tried to get in some extra steps, it's really just gonna eat into more of my time. So in that case, you know, we do have to consider that per minute, doing cardiovascular work. So if you were on an elliptical or, you know, you were doing like an incline walk on a treadmill or you were on a rowing machine or something per minute, you are going to burn more calories than you would if you were out walking. So from a time efficiency standpoint, I certainly think that there is a time and place if you need to do structured cardio with your clients and some clients like doing cardio too, you know, getting your heart rate up feels good, but uh, yeah. But you know, if they wanted to do a lot of steps per se, I'm not necessarily against that, but at the same time, you know, there is a threshold for how high you'd wanna go with steps. And for Jack and I, that would probably be somewhere like the highest, I'd say what, like 20,000 you'd say? 15 to 20. We've said 15 previously. Yeah, 15,000 is still really high. 15 to 20,000, that's pretty darn high. It depends if you're accustomed to it, you know? If uh, if you're a construction worker or, you know, you work in retail or you're a waitress or something and you're always on your feet and you're just accustomed to that sort of movement and your steps are going to be 20,000 regardless, then yeah, uh, then they just, that's what they are, you know, and you're used to that. But trying to get someone from going to 10,000 steps per day to 20,000 steps per day is a completely different story. So yeah, another element that I would add is if you are doing like an hour of cardio every single day, like the rowing machine or something like that, then are you entering a rowing competition or are you entering like a bodybuilding competition? And 
it is the goal should be to try and do as little cardiovascular work and steps as possible and that's one going to be highly determined uh, by genetically as well like um, in terms of your metabolism are you going to be able to diet on a large amount of food a small amount of food or how much work have you put into the off season have you given yourself enough time and we do know that it's pretty established now that the metabolism is will not really be influenced that much by really low amounts of food or really high amounts of food it will adapt to either one of those but it you won't per se damage your metabolism forever forever sorry it's going to be very genetically determined and i will say that females probably they just have often have a harder time losing weight because they consume a lot less food compared to males and therefore they may find it a little bit more difficult to lose weight and have to incorporate more cardio but as Tierra said, it's really going to come down to the individual, but I wouldn't go into a prep expecting to do hours of cardio because I just don't think that's the best way of doing a prep. Like our goal should be to try and preserve training as much as possible. And sure, if we need to do cardio, then we'll put that in there, but it shouldn't be a prerequisite. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we're thinking about the preservation of skeletal muscle, Apart from just consuming an adequate amount of dietary protein per day, you need to be providing yourself with that resistance training stimulus. So you need to be lifting weights. So at no point during a competition prep, you know, or any sort of dieting phase or just in general, you know, if your main goal is to change your body composition and build and preserve as much muscle mass as possible, you really need to prioritize your weight training over your cardiovascular work. And hell man, weight training still gets your heart rate up, still damn puts your cardiovascular system through a workout. So you're still gonna increase general fitness anyway through lifting weights too. Awesome, so that's coming up on time for today's episode. And as per usual, we'll finish with our final question. And that is, what did you learn this week? So Tiara, what did you learn? (laughs) What did you learn? I always ask you that. Um, something that I learned this week is I actually learned how to do figure posing. So that was really, really fun. That was really cool. Um, so pretty much I went to the ICN posing workshop at World's Gym Bayside on Sunday, which was really great. And for the first hour, I just did fitness posing and sports model posing. But the ICN president, Jason, who, you know, we've had on the podcast a few times now was leading the workshop. And he's like, you know what, Tiara, do you want to stay behind for the figure posing? And I was like, man, it's the middle of a Sunday. I don't have much else on. Why not? So I stayed behind and I learned how to do figure posing. And holy crap, do I have so much more respect for figure competitors. Because, you know, initially I thought it was a pretty fair playing field between like bikini and fitness competitors and bodybuilding and physique competitors. Because pretty much the trade-off is that, you know, bikini and fitness, you've got to wear the heels, you know, and that can be very difficult if you aren't naturally coordinated, right? (laughs) So walking around in heels and strutting your stuff and trying to be sassy, right? That can be really difficult and it takes a hell of a lot of practice. And I think that level of difficulty, you know, and the precision that it takes to choreograph those kind of routines and that posing does kind of equal out to the bodybuilders and the physique competitors because they get to be up there barefoot, so goddamn lucky. 
But the trade-off is obviously they have to turn on their muscles and they've got to tense the hell out of their body, you know, and really practice their endurance and be up there breaking a freaking sweat and somehow smile at the same time. But I have so much respect for figure competitors because not only are they in heels, just like the bikini and fitness girls, but they're also tensing like crazy too. And wow, oh my God. But um, anyway, that was really, really fun. Uh, learning how to do like abs and thighs, even though abs and my thighs are like my weakest body parts. <laughs> but like, you know, like doing like a front double by, a back double by, there's so much to think about, you know, like when you're doing like a, like a bicep pose, you know, having to turn on your biceps and your triceps at the same time, dude, that takes freaking skill. Um, but anyway, I had a lot of fun and that's what I learned how to do this week. And I think for all the posing lessons in the future, I think I am going to stay behind for that extra hour and just keep practicing figure posing because yeah, it's fun. And also really learning how to turn on my back. I know that's going to translate into better posing for my fitness poses when I do a back pose. So that's me, man. That's me. All right, Jack, what do you learn this week? So we just got our new dog, Sam, uh, one week ago exactly, which is why we didn't put out a podcast episode last week. So I think that's a pretty good excuse, but things have been going really well. And something I learned about dogs is that the first 15 weeks is very important for socialization and new experiences. So even though your dog won't be vaccinated, it's still very important to try and get them to socialize with other dogs that are vaccinated. So we're bringing Sam to puppy preschool. We're getting people who have dogs to come around as long as their dogs are vaccinated. And so she can learn new things, get to meet new people. And even things like brushing your dog or giving them a bath, like making sure that's a pleasurable experience for them so that they're not scared of it uh, in future years. So yeah, if you want to follow Sam, you can follow her on Sam's Tales, S-A-M-S underscore T-A-L-E-S. And yeah, she's nine weeks old today. Nine weeks old, and uh, she is a sweet little girl. Oh man, I love her so much. And she's actually been pretty sweet. So we've had her for like seven nights now, and only two of the nights has she actually woken us up in the middle of the night. The other nights, she has been sleeping all the way through until 4.45 a.m. So to ensure that I can still get eight hours sleep, uh, I've started going to bed at around 8.30. Sometimes Jack is like, are you serious? And I'm like, I need my sleep. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I've, uh, I've been on morning duty while this man here gets to sleep in for an extra two hours. So I get up during yeah. the night. <laughs> but you've only been up two nights. <laughs> anyway, that trade off. But yeah, guys, that's pretty much the end of our 58th episode. As always, if you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, tag Jack, tag myself, tell your family and friends about it, and we'll tag talk. Sam if you want as well. Oh yeah, definitely tag <laughs> Sam. Go follow Sam. We'll put Sam's um, Instagram in the uh, little show notes below. Sam's Tales. That girl learned how to skateboard this past weekend at Proppy Preschool. So um. Proper yeah. preschool. Proper preschool. Yeah, watch out Tony Hawk. But uh, anyway, guys, we will see you later. 